Has anyone else found it a strange thing that most of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke, kind of begin by talking about someone that's not Jesus? Like this is, this is a biography of the Lord Jesus, but most of the accounts begin by talking about someone else. Has anyone else found that weird? I'm alone here. John the Baptist is usually how most of the biographies begin. That's a little strange, isn't it? It's a biography of the life of Jesus, and it starts by talking about this guy, John the Baptist, who's different, by the way, from the John who wrote this account. This book is called John. That's the disciple John, Jesus' best mate, who wrote this account of Jesus' life. But it begins by speaking about John the Baptist. In fact, he gets a mention back there in verse 6 of chapter 1. Um, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. That's John the Baptist. Um, I, I find myself thinking, why does John the Baptist need to be mentioned at the beginning of the account every time? What is the big deal with John the Baptist? Because this is not just splashed in. John has carefully created this account and he's done it so that you would really get to know who Jesus is and come to believe in him. It's there for a reason, so I want to start by asking the question, and maybe some of you have wrestled with that this week, what's the big deal with John the Baptist? Two things we're going to wrestle with tonight, or two things that I think answer that question. Number one, the existence of John the Baptist shows us that God is trustworthy and dependable. That's the first thing. So if you're writing notes, there's your first one. Second thing, um, John the Baptist for us is an incredibly beautiful model of humility. Humility towards God. So just those two things tonight, and we'll see how we go with that. Um, keep your head down in the Word with me. Um, first one. How is it that the mention of John the Baptist or the existence of John the Baptist shows that God is trustworthy and dependable? Well, here's the deal. There's a pattern in the Bible, and it's a really basic pattern, and you see it from the beginning to end, and it goes like this. Promise, fulfilment. Promise, fulfilment. This is basically a recollection. The Bible is a recollection of what God has done through history, and this is how God, this is the pattern of the way God has interacted with history. He makes a promise through a prophet, and then he fulfills it. And so the existence of John the Baptist coming at this point in time, yet again, is a promise or a prophecy that God gave being fulfilled. And, and, and what, what we find out is that long before this time, about 400 years before the coming of the Messiah Jesus and this John the Baptist figure, there's this bloke or like a, what you might call a forerunner or a messenger that's prophesied about and promised, a real particular type of man who was the one who was to come before the Messiah, just before the Messiah, so that you would know that this was the Messiah who was coming because you would see this character, this messenger, this forerunner, the guy who came before the Messiah. And, and you get promises, and in fact, you want to flick with me back to Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament before the New Testament begins. So just flick back, if, you, if you've got a Bible, flick with me. Just before Matthew, you get Malachi. Um, now, um, some people call him Malachi. I kind of figured that uh, if Michele was here with us tonight, he would like that, being our only Italian man among us. Um, but he's not, but I'll try to make that joke anyway. Um, so Malachi, it, it just, just catch the promise or the prophecy here with me because it helps make sense of the New Testament when you know what's promised and what's come before it. So look at Malachi, you there with me? And look at, look at chapter 3. He says, here's the promise, I will send a messenger 
who will prepare the way before me. So there's a mention there of a messenger who's going to come before the Lord comes or before the day of the Lord, which is actually the coming of the Messiah. So you get this mention of a guy called a messenger. Now flick to chapter 5 and look at verse 5. In the prophecy, you get a little bit more detail about it. Stick with me on this. Chapter 5, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah who will go before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that's the coming of the Messiah, he will turn the hearts of the parents towards their children and the hearts of the children towards their parents. So here's this mention of this figure again. Did you catch me? Oh, it's not chapter 5, it's chapter (laughs) 4. I just invented a chapter in the Bible, shush. Um, Chapter 4, verse 5. Sorry, guys, can you see it there? I will send the prophet Elijah. Now, that's interesting because Elijah's already come and gone. So when Malachi gives this promise, I'll tell you what's going on here. He says there's going to be someone else who comes and he's going to be just like Elijah. That's the point. He's going to be just like Elijah and he'll come before the day of the Lord, before the coming of the Messiah, and he's going to be the one who turns hearts. So just grab that picture of the promise or the prophecy. Add to it what other prophets have said, like Isaiah chapter 40, who speaks about this same messenger and says he's going to be like one, like the voice of one calling in the wilderness and calling people back to the Lord. There's there's a number of different prophecies that speak about John the Baptist or get fulfilled in John the Baptist. So just catch it with me for a minute. He's going to be a messenger. He's going to be a voice in the wilderness calling people back to God. He's He's going to be just like Elijah, and he's going to turn the hearts of people. It's going to help them repent. So catch those four things. Now flick back to John with me. And there's a few other things you need to know from other Gospels that I'll mention. But if you bring that understanding of this messenger, this forerunner who's meant to come before the Messiah, and then you start thinking about John the Baptist, it helps you understand the significance. Because between that prophecy of Malachi, you've got 400 years of waiting 400 years of virtual silence from God through his prophets. And then appears this guy, John the Baptist, who, by the way, is Jesus' weird, freaky second cousin. John the Baptist's mum, Elizabeth, was actually a cousin of Mary, Jesus' mother. So John the Baptist is, is related in some way to Jesus. But John the Baptist appears and he's in the wilderness and he's dressed in camel skin and eating the kind of diet that the classic desert prophets would eat, locusts and wild honey. So he's, he's just like Elijah and he's calling. There's a voice in the wilderness. People are coming out to actually see him and actually as they come out, he baptises them, which is a baptism for the repentance of sin. So he's, he's turning hearts. He's a voice in the wilderness. He looks just like Elijah and, it, and one of the big things he's saying is, I'm not the guy. The guy is still to come after me. All of this has been promised and prophesied 400 years earlier and now John the Baptist appears. He's the messenger. He's the forerunner. He's the supporting act before the real deal comes. And what that means for the whole of the nation of Israel and for everyone who's been waiting for the Messiah is they know the Messiah's coming. He's coming. So big moment for Israel and also just another fulfilment of prophecy from God. So one big thing you can sit back from this and kind of go, okay, God's trustworthy. He's dependable. When he makes a promise, it always comes to fulfilment. He's the ultimate promise keeper. It's the pattern of the Bible. And so just at this point, you can sit back and just absorb this 
thing about God with me for a moment. Um, nothing will keep God from going about his plans um, that, that he promised. And his ultimate plan is to redeem humanity through his son Jesus. Nothing will stop him from rescuing people through Jesus for himself. He's going to go about his plan. And nothing's going to stop God from hanging on to those who have come to put their trust in Jesus and keeping them for that final day. Because God will keep his promises and he'll go about his plans. God's proven himself to be reliable through history. He's proven his words to be trustworthy. You can depend on him. In fact, you will find no better or firmer foundation for life than in him. He's the one who made you. He sustains you. He has come to save you in Jesus. And so he is the, the solid rock on whom you can base your life upon. All other ground is sinking sand. God is the one to base it on. And this is probably the only moment in the week where you will hear that kind of a message. Every other moment in the week, you'll be told to get your, finance, get your security in life through a career or your security in life through building an ultimate family or your security in life through living the kind of lifestyle that's full of leisure and adventure or your security in life through shoring yourself up financially. That'll be the message you hear all week long. It'll only be when you open the scriptures with your brothers and sisters that you'll hear that actually the only sure, firm foundation for your life is found in God, the ultimately trustworthy and dependable one. So for some of you, maybe that's all you needed tonight. Maybe that's what you needed to hear. Because if you're to be completely honest, you've been hunting for a foundation or completion or security everywhere else, or maybe in one particular place. And if you can be honest enough to know what that is, I, I want you to hear from the scriptures that that place will crumble and your life will wobble because the only firm foundation in life is the one who made you, is sustaining you, and has come to save you. He's the one to base your life on. And the existence of John the Baptist reminds us again that God is trustworthy and dependable. And I say that might be enough for you because I understand any time the Bible gets opened, sometimes it's just one thing you need to cling on to and wrestle with. And if that's yours, feel free to tune me out for the rest of this time and just pray about that one. But the second thing I want to bring to you, for those of you who've got more, um, is that in John the Baptist, what we get is a model for the truly hu humble life or a model of humility, what real humility is. Now, I mentioned that word humility and there might be all kinds of things that come to mind for you. There's lots of different types or looks of humility. But I want to talk about how John the Baptist is a good model for us in that he does this beautifully well. He basically, with his whole life and his words, he says this, not me. It's not about me, it's about him. In fact, he, say, he says with this with his life, I exist just to point you to him, speaking about God you know, or the Messiah. It's like John the Baptist is the ultimate supporting act, is the greatest supporting act you'll ever see. Like You've been to see bands before. You get, when you go to see a band, usually they're the headlining band, but before that band comes out, there's the supporting act or supporting acts. 
Now, sometimes you go along and you, and you see those supporting acts, and sometimes they're trying to get the limelight for themselves. Yeah, sometimes they're trying to steal the show and get everyone following them. But you know the best supporting acts are the ones who use their gifts to draw in the crowd and help them anticipate the headlining act that is to come. Yeah? I remember going to see Jack Johnson years ago in Centennial Park and there were a bunch of supporting actors but I remember one particular one, Donovan, who came on I think just before him who, who I feel like just did a great job of just enjoying the moment and he kept saying things like it's such a privilege to be here and to be supporting Jack you know? and, and, and he, you know, he's a pretty accomplished musician, he's a good guy to listen to but he, he really did a good, good job getting us all to anticipate that Jack was coming and getting us to wait for him and hyping us all up for him. That's the idea of a supporting act. That's what John the Baptist does beautifully time and time again. Look at the words that come out of his mouth. Look at verse 20. He's actually causing quite a fuss out in the wilderness, by the way. It says in other Gospels that the whole of Judea went out to see him. So you've got thousands of people coming out to make a big deal of him and receive his baptism. So much so that all the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are actually got to figure out who this guy is. So they come out and they ask him questions. Are you the Messiah? Verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but freely confessed, I am not the Messiah. So really clear about it. Look at verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He's like, I'm not the one. I'm just a voice calling out to try to help prepare people for the one who is to come. You know, he's really clear about it. Look at verse 27. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. That's imagery in regards to a household servant who would be the only one who would have to be the one to stoop down and untie the straps of sandals. In the ancient world, that was like the lowest of low kind of tasks that a servant in a household would have to do. It's kind of gross and humiliating to do it. And John the Baptist says, this one who is to come is so supreme, he's so glorious, he's so majestic, I am not even worthy to be a servant for him. So John is really clearly saying, I must become less, he must become more. In fact, the minute Jesus arrives on the scene, he speaks to all his own disciples because by that time, he's got a bit of a following himself and he actually says to all his own disciples, leave me and follow him. What a big thing to do. Go and follow him. Why? What was so glorious about Jesus? Well, he actually speaks about it there in, what is it, verse, verse 30. Have a look at verse 30. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. The reason why this Messiah is so glorious is that he was before John the Baptist, not meaning he was just born before him, but he actually was there at the very beginning before the creation of the world. That's what John is saying. He's saying the one who is to come is actually the one who existed before anything existed. And we heard about him back at the beginning of chapter 1. He's the word who was with God and who was God. We're talking here about the very son of God in whom there was life and all of creation came from. Because it was his life that flowed out and brought anything that does exist into being. And John the Baptist is saying, this is the one. The, the son of God, forever a pre-existent. The one who created all things. He was before me and he's the one who's coming. He's the king who's actually coming down to be the Messiah and the saviour of his people. 
So he's, he's that glorious and mighty because he's creator, but he's glorious and mighty as a creator because he's the creator who comes to save. Look at the language that, God, that, that John uses here in verse 29, which is just, it's worth digging into. Um, the next day, John saw Jesus coming. So John has this moment. It's, it's hard to kind of get the timing right in this passage, by the way. It's tricky to know how it works. But John the Baptist spots Jesus coming, likely because the day before he baptised Jesus and saw, a, saw the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus and a word from the Lord that this is the one. And so he knows Jesus and here he spots him. I'm exactly sure about the order, but he spots him coming and look at what he says. He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just say, look, the Messiah, the King, the one who created everything. He goes, look, the Lamb of God. Now, why does he call the Messiah, why does he call the Son of God the Lamb of God? Because that's interesting language, isn't it? If you know your Bible, there'll be, there'll be lamb imagery popping off in your mind right now. It'll take you back to when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, but God provided a lamb. It's it's the sacrifice that God provides that means Isaac doesn't need to die. That's an interesting story in and of itself. But look, here's where the lamb appears. You you might be thinking about um, the Passover, when when God's people Israel um, were in Egypt, and um, they were instructed to celebrate the Passover by taking a lamb without blemish, and sacrificing that lamb and shedding its blood on the doorway so that the wrath of God would pass over. Every time a lamb is mentioned, it's the sacrifice so that you don't need to cop it. You might think of um, the temple um, where, where the most common sacrifice is that a lamb would be brought and slain for the sins of the people, the daily sacrifice. You might even know the book of the Revelation where we get to see into the very throne room of God and we look and who's sitting on the throne, the glorious God of the universe, it's a slain lamb. It's, 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 it's the one who was sacrificed for the forgiveness of the people. So when John the Baptist looks and he goes, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying, look, here comes your sacrifice. Here comes the king, the one who made you, the one who rules over you, the one who's sustaining your life, the one who you stand in front of at the end as the judge. And he's coming to rescue you by laying down his own life. This is amazing that God would come as a lamb and would sacrifice himself for our sins. So here's what you need to make sure you're hearing and you need to let this sink in. Jesus came and he took the hit for you. The God who made you came and took your sin upon himself. He died in your place and bore the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved. So make sure you've got the right picture of Jesus. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. But I tell you what, when he came, he didn't come simply to just be a good example because you needed some tips on how to live a good life. He did not come just as a life coach to give you a bit of advice on how to get, uh, how to get the most out of this few short days on the earth. That's not ultimately why he came. He came as a substitute. He came as a sacrifice. He came to shed his blood so that you don't have to bear the wrath you deserve 
for your sin. So I, like John the Baptist, kind of want to say to you today, look, look and see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take your sin. And, it's, and friends, this is where humility begins. You want to talk about humility? Here's where it begins. As someone who is able to hear this and put your hand up and you say, I desperately need a sacrifice for my sin. This is where, to be someone who kind of says, no, no, I don't, I don't simply just need a few tips. Like sin is, sin is an issue for me at a very core level that I want to rebel from and reject God and live without regard for him and it's such a problem for me that I actually need someone to die for me. And that actually is one of the more confronting things about the cross, really. It, it really tells you about your sin, that our sin is such an issue, that your sin is such an issue, God needed to die so that you could be saved. I mean, if that doesn't cause you to squirm in your seat, nothing's going to. We would prefer to think about ourselves like this. I'm generally a good person. I sometimes make mistakes. And you can hold that view, just don't open up the Bible. Because the minute you open up the scriptures that says, no, 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 you are corrupt to the core. And sometimes you do some nice things. But your issue is so deep and it's so real, God had to come and die to rescue you. That's humiliating to hear. It's levelling to hear. Every human needs to hear that. God didn't die because it was just one of the many ways. He died because we desperately needed it. And friends, here's where humility begins. As someone who can kind of say, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb I need, the sacrifice I need to cover my sin. So I want to encourage you to kind of begin there with your journey on humility. That is where the Christian life begins, actually. Being able to be someone who's humble enough to say, I need a saviour. And my God is a wonderful saviour. He's the lamb I needed. And humility goes on from that. You know, the model that we get here from John goes on and here's where we could spend forever talking about the humble life, the life that begins saying I need a saviour but it continues in that same spirit, in that same dynamic to live humbly, the kind of life that says not me, him. What is humility? I think humility actually on the ground um, kind of looks really different really for lots of different types of Christians and you don't want to get stuck on just one particular picture of humility because we've all got different personalities and you might you know when you think about humility it might be you think of someone who's kind of lowly in appearance or quiet always mellow downcast looking kind of person woe is me that that might be your picture of humility Maybe the person who's going, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. Sometimes that's false humility. And maybe you do that sometimes, like I do, where you're like, no, I'm really bad. Please tell me I'm good. You know, and you're really just trying to get compliments out of people. You're trying to get other people to build up your self-esteem. That's false humility, okay? Humility, humility is a core, it's a core belief that starts like this. I need a saviour. Sin, my sin is that much of an issue. I need a saviour. And then it continues with this belief of the heart that says, yeah, not me, him. That's what life's about. It's not about me. 
which is to kind of say this, and this is hard for us, is to say, ultimately, my life is not just about me. It's not about my dreams, my desires being fulfilled. Every other message you hear throughout the week will tell you it is. But humility says, actually, it's not about my dreams and desires. It's actually about him, his name, his glory. Yeah, he gives you desires. Some desires bubble up in your heart that are not from him. Our hearts are actually really good at producing unholy desires. So whatever you do, don't just follow your heart because your heart will lead you to crazy places. Follow God's heart and let your heart be shaped to be like his. But this is the beginning of humility to be able to person can just kind of go, you know what, this actually isn't about me. Life is not about me. That's huge. That, 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 that can be for most of us, your life just getting turned right upside down. I actually exist not just for myself. I exist for the one who made me. It's huge. It, it's not about my... And let me give you a few things that we tend to do with our lives, and this just comes from me reflecting on myself, by the way. It's not about me being recognised. It's not about me being respected. Maybe that's your thing. It's not about me wanting, being able to live this epic life of leisure and adventure. Maybe that's your thing. It's not about you being able to put together and raise this amazingly secure, beautiful family for your own namesake. And none of these things are necessarily evil in and of themselves. It's just that that's not what life's about. And you don't exist simply for those things. And if you give yourself solely to those types of things as the meaning of your existence, the purpose of your existence, what's going to help you be fulfilled, you will find your world crumbling. As these beautiful little kids you had all these hopes and dreams for don't turn out to be the perfect picture you had, which is going to be the case for all of us on some level. True humility begins by saying, I need a saviour. It continues with this belief of the heart that says, not me, him. And it goes on, I think, asking this question, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decadely, whatever. You ask this question. It, it, it asks the question, what have I been given? You know, what's in my hands? And how can I use it or live in it to make much of Jesus. What have I been given? Now, here's the thing. I use the word given because it's easy for us to think about the things that we have as things we've developed, that we've worked for. But you need to understand you've been given. And if you can use that language and you say, what have I been given? How can I use it to make much of Jesus? You'll start to think about your abilities. You'll start to think about your resources that are at your disposal you'll start to think about the entire platform of life that you've been given in the society that we live in and everything that enables you to do what you do on a daily and weekly basis. And you'll see that as something you've been given and you'll be, okay, Lord, you've given me so much. How can I best use this for your sake, for your name, for your glory? You go through life asking yourself that question, You'll think about your abilities, your resources. You'll think about the relationships that you've got, the ones maybe that aren't entirely banged up. <laughs> you'll think about the family that you happen to have. You just think about your whole network and you're like, all right, Lord, you give me a network. Family, friends, 
How do I use that? I dare you to start asking, live by asking these questions. Some of you already do, like it. You'll also do this when you ask the question, what have I been given? You'll go, well, I've been given some pretty serious limitations as well. And you want to acknowledge those. Limitations in your own capacity and energy and intellect and emotions and all that kind of stuff. Acknowledge your limitations. Acknowledge the hardships that you're living in. Acknowledge the circumstances you've got and go, okay, Lord, how do you want me to live in this for your name's sake? Which may not be to just run from your limitations and ignore that they exist and pretend they're not happening. But go, okay, Lord, here's what's really going on for me right now. How can you be glorified in this? That, that's a question that I think a spirit of humility will go on asking through life. What, what are you doing with this, Lord? What, you, you brought this to me. How, how can this be for you? Ask those questions. What have I been given? Now, some people, when they ask those questions, what have I been given? They make kind of those um, big, obvious decisions that we all look at and go, wow, they're really going for it for the Lord. So, like, you know, we're going to meet... Chris and Christy Galea in a few weeks' time who have decided they're going to go and be missionaries in Malta. You know, how many of you guys are up for that? You know, most of us, we kind of go, whoa, okay. So, you know, we want to love these guys and pray for them and get behind them because most of us just haven't got the guts to pull off that kind of stuff. Actually, most of us maybe shouldn't do that kind of stuff anyway. Maybe God hasn't given you what you need to do that kind of stuff and that's okay. And they're the kind of big, obvious decisions people make. But guys, don't just think big, obvious things. Just think small, daily things. The daily grind of having young kids. The daily grind of you working in your job with a boss that drives you nuts. The daily grind of your neighbour's dog that's barking at you constantly. I don't know what it is, but the daily grind, here is where you live for Christ. And you ask him, what do I do with this? And to ask that question, what, what have I been given? How can I use it for you? Is going to be this daily, hourly thing where we go, okay, I just got to love God right now and I need to honour Jesus and obey him in this moment. And I do need to try to maximise the amount of time and energy and resources that I can give towards his things. You know, I want to do that. But I'll tell you what, that, that question of what have I got, how can I use it for him, will direct you, I think. It's a helpful question that a heart of humility will be asking. I can just pray, but I thought I'll just pause. Um, Have you got thoughts? Have you got a question or a comment you want to make? It might be a question about the text. might be a comment about a humble life. might be something you've been thinking about this week. I'll just pause for a minute and... They don't got something they want to share. Yeah, God gives limitations. He gives hardship. He gives seasons where you can just heaps of capacity and you run a mile and you serve lots of people and you you know you're able to do this and that in church and that's wonderful. And then he gives seasons where you just ground down and you know that's it. you want to acknowledge what's going on and what's been given. And, and as a new church, where we're, as we're just you know, trying to take steps forward, you know, to, to you know, start developing as a community of people who love God, love each other and reach out, our capacity as a church to do whatever together is limited. It's, it's limited by how many we've got, but it's limited by how we're going, and that's okay too. One of the mantras that I'm trying to live with in this season 
um, and, and maybe this is helpful to you, is let, let's, let's just do and be what we can in this moment and in this season. Because it's easy for us to put pressures on ourselves to do and be many wonderful things that we want to be and that we've seen in the past or others are doing or whatever. But no, no, let, let's just let's enjoy the moment we're in the season we're in, what we can be. We're going to be able to make a move next week to this new space and it's going to feel weird probably sometimes. We, we might feel a little small in there. I don't know, there might be all kinds of feelings. But let's just let this moment happen and let's see what the Lord has for us as far as limitations even in that moment and trust him in that. Um, he's good. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. And so we build our lives on him. How about I pray and then we're going to... Have another song shared with us. Cuckoo. Bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father God, thank you for this, this account of John the Baptist's life and how we can see in it again you know, the pattern of you making a promise and you fulfilling that promise and that showing you to be trustworthy, dependable, reliable, the one in whom we can have our lives um, placed secure and firm as a foundation. And Lord, John the Baptist is a model of humility for us. Lord, would you enable us by the power of your Spirit to be able to people who to be able to be people who over and over again can acknowledge, I need a saviour. I need the Lamb of God to die and take my sin. And Lord, I pray that we would live in that spirit of humility, uh, being able to, from our hearts, say, it's not me, it's him, and continue to ask that question, what have I been given? What's in my hands? How can I use this to make much of you? Lord, please keep working in us. It's exciting to see how you are. Please keep working in us by your spirit so your name gets lifted up and you get the praise you deserve from more and more of the people who you have made. Amen. Amen.